0: So, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in the 80s, there was this TV show called MacGyver. It was about this guy, uh, played by Richard Dean Anderson, who could do amazing things with the everyday and the not-so-everyday items that surrounded him. Whether he was stuck in a prison cell, whether he was tied up in the boot of a car, stranded on a desert island, or, or, or stuck in the middle of the Amazon... MacGyver could with his trusty Swiss army knife With his know-how And with the limited resources that were available to him He could always end up winning the day Uh, So the running gag came in in, in the 80s Uh, The running gag became like the various parodies And the the jokes I guess you could say the 80s equivalent of memes Took place regarding making fun of this gentleman And what he could actually do Now When we look at Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, we could view it in a couple of ways. Uh, We could view it from the perspective of the people named in that chapter. We can look at Abel. And his acceptable sacrifice in verse 4. We could look at Enoch and how he lived a life pleasing to God in verses 5 and 6. We could look at Noah and his faithfulness as a preacher of righteousness in verse 7. We could look at Abraham and Sarah and where they went and what they did in verses 8 to 12. That's one way we can look at Hebrews chapter 11. The other way is looking at it from God's perspective, and how he moved through each of their lives if they would trust in him. The difference, though, between MacGyver and God, I mean, besides the obvious, is the fact that God doesn't need any one of these people to have his will done. God doesn't need the specifics, he doesn't need the resources as limited as they are, but... He does invite people, just like he invited them to be a part of his plan and a part of his will in accomplishing his goals for humanity. He invites them to play an active part in fulfilling his desires. And that's what makes Hebrews chapter 11 so exciting. It was his invitation to them to see God, be God, and believe that God will do what he says he will do. It is also an invitation for us to do the same. So with that, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 as we look in the Scriptures and we bear witness to the story of Moses and what God can do. So what I'm to do is i going to open it a word of prayer, and I'm going to invite Nick to come up and do a Bible reading for us, which is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. So bow your heads, let's pray. Thanks, Joyce. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We sang that your breath in our lungs. We pour out our praise to you only because you alone are worthy of all praise, of all majesty, of all honor. So, Father, we pray this morning that we will see in the scriptures Your mighty hand at work, not only in the lives of Moses and the life of Moses, but also in our lives as well. I pray You will help me to speak clearly, help me to speak just slowly, and we, as we look at Your Word and see the magnificence of Your Person being revealed, not only in the life of Moses but in our lives also. We commit this time to You. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Nick. Thanks, bro.
1: Okay, from Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Thank
0: you very much, Nick. I really like the way he read that. The the words that he emphasized were actually quite on point with what I wanted to communicate with you today. So Nick, not knowing that he was reading until this morning, did an absolutely brilliant job. So from this text, we're going to look at three very exciting examples of what God can do in and through the lives of his people. And in looking at those examples, we're going to glean some practical applications, but also take away some very important lessons as well. The first of which, the first of which is in the blessing of parenthood. If you read with me in verse 23, we read this. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is what I call what God can do through a parent's faith. What God can do through a parent's faith, or, or if you wanna broaden it a little bit more, what God can do through the example of faith from others, you see, if faith is according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see, then the greatest institution, the greatest appointment granted by God for which this truth is communicated, has to be proclaimed from the home. It has to be. Moses was only three months, yes, when his parents hid him, and then ultimately have to hand him over to the Lord when they placed him in a basket, put him in the Nile, and then trusted God with his protection over him. But just as Isaac last week we learned was handed back to Abraham, so too was Moses handed back to his mother as we as we looked at or as we'll look at very brief, as we looked at it very briefly. Okay, um, and if you look at Exodus chapter one and two, we read this. And under the care of his mother, he would have heard about the story of faith. Under the care of his mother, he would have heard and been taught about the greatness and the faithfulness and the sovereignty and the majesty of God. He would have heard about how he was placed in this basket because his his life was under threat. He would have heard about he was sent down the Nile and then discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. He would have heard how, because of his parents' faithfulness, that he was returned to them to be raised by them. For, as we read in that verse 23, he was no ordinary child. You see, the example of Moses' parents was that they lived out a faith that was genuine. They lived out the reality of their confidence and their trust in a God who knows what he is doing. Um, If you go back to May 10th, 2021, that was Mother's Day. And we actually looked at Moses' mum on Mother's Day, Jochebed. And there were three important lessons we drew away from Jochebed, how she was not alone in this. She was one of many mothers, and yet she stood out because she trusted God with her son. She defied Pharaoh's edict. You see how she did the best that she could by making a basket and placing her son in that basket and placing him down the Nile River, as well as sending his older sister Miriam to follow him. But ultimately, she had to rely on the Lord by faith. And she trusted that God would do and bring about his purposes in Moses' life. If you look at Psalm 37, verse 5. I've sort of paraphrased it a bit, but it's essentially she committed her way to the Lord. She trusted also in Him and God brought it to pass. This is why they could live a life without fear. They could live a life without the fear of circumstance. They could live a life without fear of the edict. They could live a life without fear of Pharaoh. Why? Because as 1 John 4, 8 says, perfect love casts out all fear. And that's how the life of faith was passed and is to be passed from generation to generation. A child sees their parents and how they live. A child sees their parents and what they prioritize. A child sees their parents and what excites them. And that's what we see. The ability to see by faith has to be present in the home Demonstrated by the parents, and it has to be seen. The reality has to be present for the children to acknowledge and recognize what a life of faith looks like. And it's evidenced through people as they stand by faith and revealed in the lives as they take each day as it comes. It is why when you look at Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five, it's what's known as the Shema. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy uh, 6, verses 4 and 5. But that Shema is then followed by what? It is followed by the instruction for the parents to instill that truth in the lives of their children. That truth of whether they lie down and raise up, whether they're walking by the wayside or in bed, it has to be demonstrated by the parents that this gift of faith as it is referred to in one Corinthians twelve nine, is to be bestowed on the children through us as the parents. It is how it is imparted to the next generation. They won't get it at school because at school there are just far too many restrictions. They won't get it, they'll only get a little bit of it at church because at church they're only here maybe once, twice, maybe even three times a week. But it's only limited from the church. They definitely won't get it from Instagram, YouTube, or TikTok. They definitely won't get it there, especially if we are not monitoring the intake of that social media. But this is the privilege bestowed upon not only on us as parents, but on us as the church family, that we can show the next generation what it means and what it looks like to live by faith, by faith in a God who is faithful, by faith in a God who hears his people, by faith in a God who keeps his promises. This is the design that God has set in place and the design that we get to be a part of, of teaching and modeling and imparting the beauty of what I've called during the series, the beauty of a relational faith, a relational faith that is imparted to the next generation. And that is just awesome. And that, that's, why, that's why, whether you're an uncle or an aunt or an older brother, even a younger brother, whether you're a parent, a grandmother or a grandfather, whether you're a Bible study leader or, 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 or a leader of some sort, if you're just older than somebody else, this is what we have the privilege to be a part of as a church because there's no, no limit to what God can do through his people in imparting the truth of his word and the beauty of a relational faith to the next generation. And it can be done through each of us because that's the evidence of what God can do through a parent's faith or through a Bible study leader's faith or through an uncle's faith or a grandmother's faith. There's no limit to what the influence can be upon those people as you show who God is to them by what you say, but also, more importantly, by what you do. That you don't just talk a big game, you live a big game. But that is what God can do through a parent's faith. But that is just but one step. That is one step. Because we can also see as we work through this passage in Hebrews 11, what God can do through a unique circumstance. And that's in verses 24 to 27. Now, I mean, think about it. Here's a unique circumstance. A Hebrew baby gets put down a river, gets found by a princess essentially the pharaoh's daughter gets elevated to the place of power as a prince of egypt is raised by his hebrew mother and has this position of great influence and power that's pretty unique in 1998 dreamworks released their very first film does anybody know what that very first film was Kath is like, Shrek. It's not Shrek. If you do have not type it, but the very first film produced by Steven Spielberg's DreamWorks pictures was The Prince of Egypt. In 1998, The Prince of Egypt. Thanks, thanks for nothing, Kath. Okay, all right. So, so, so in that movie, The Prince of Egypt, Moses is portrayed as not knowing who he is. And this is a big shock to him when he bumps into Miriam, his sister, and explains to him that he is actually the son of a Hebrew slave. And then there's this big uh, crisis of identity that he goes through. The Bible story is far different from the animated film. The Bible story clearly lays out the fact that he knew who he was from a youngster. Why? Because his mum raised him. His mum brought him up. His mum knew, as we said, he was no ordinary child and that he has gone from this place of slavery to this place of power. And so he would have learned of his heritage from his mother and his father, probably from his siblings as well. And so in verses 24 and 26 of Hebrews 11, we read of three unique circumstances and of each, and in each of them we can identify in Moses, re- Moses' response what his mindset was. Now we're gonna chop between Moses, uh, Hebrews 11 and Exodus chapters 2 and 3, okay? So verses 24 and 26, we read this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If you look back at how Nick was reading this, he actually emphasized that word Refused. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, and he emphasized the word chose too, to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So here's the first thing. He denied his royal privilege as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now that's pretty unique. He denied his identification with Egypt by being ill-treated with Israel, and that's pretty unique. He denied earthly riches as a reward uh, sorry, for, he denied earthly riches for a reward, rather to take that which is eternal and unseen. And that's pretty unique. To gain a clearer look at what is taking place and the uniqueness of Moses' circumstances, you need to look at those events a little more in detail. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 2, we read how Moses, as a prince of Egypt, as a person of power, as one who has the luxuries of Pharaoh's palace afforded to him, and the fact that he could probably make an impact in the lives of the Israelites, we read in Exodus chapter 2 verse 11 how Moses had grown, And he went out, and we read this in verse 11 of Exodus 2, to where, these two words, his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Then he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. There's this emphasis of these are my people that are in hard labor. This is my people that is getting beaten. So he steps up and and this arises, this opportunity to make a difference in the lives of his people. He willingly steps out and tries to bring about a deliverance or even a relief of sorts to his fellow countrymen. But he does it in his own way. If you read chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, we read this Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Talk about premeditated. It says he looks this way, he looks that. He goes, he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. This is a determined heart to do something. And with this act, he denies his position of royalty. But here's the thing. There is this limit to his help. Even with the position that he held, it was exposed the very next day as his human efforts turned on him quick smart. If you look at chapter two, verses 13 and 14 of Exodus, we read this. The next day, he went out, and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, "Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew?" The man said, "Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian?" Then Moses was afraid and thought, "What I did must have become known." So it appears that word got out about Moses' escapades. Word got out about the specific prince. And the choice to suffer with God's people had now become a reality. Because essentially Moses burned down the bridge that he had as a person of royalty. See, Moses sought to use his position of power as a means to either free his people or at least provide some sort of relief. But the fact now, because of this act, he was a hunted man. If you read in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went out to live in Midian. Now, in a roundabout way, doesn't that sound like us? Doesn't that accurately describe what our efforts are when we try to do things our way or according to our particular interpretation of things and end up making things infinitely worse? See, the beauty of Moses' example is that even in this failure, it wasn't the end, but the beginning of his journey with God. Because in this circumstance, we see how his actions were grounded in his knowledge of himself, that he was a a child of Israel. Uh, We look at his position of power as a prince of Egypt, but even in that position of power, he was essentially powerless to do anything to free his people. With the influence he had, there was no long-lasting change that could take place. Why? Because the source of his power was himself. The source of the change was himself. The source of his political influence was himself. His intellect, it was his intellect, it was his education. It was his understanding of the political workings of Egypt, but it was here that God could begin to develop and work with him and grow him and develop him and shape him because of the change of focus that was being brought about in Moses' life and in Moses' mindset. Because this is why in Hebrews 11, verse 26, we see how the journey starts with this changing of focus. Uh, In verse 26 of Hebrews 11, we read, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. This isn't saying that Moses knew who Jesus is. It's making the comparison that knowing and being known by God was a far greater worth than the riches and the treasures of this world, in this case of Egypt. The writer of Hebrews lays out how Moses chose to suffer as he looked forward through the eyes of faith to see his life and purpose from God's perspective. And that's a lesson we would do well to take heed of. You see, according to the Scriptures, suffering as we walk faithfully with the Lord is a part of the Christian life. Um, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Um, hardship is something we are called to endure as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 in that one. And the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, verse 18. This means then, we are like Moses to look with faith through the, through the eyes of hope to Jesus Christ, to look to the eternal and from the eternal. Because when we look to the eternal and when we look from God's perspective, that steals, when I say steals, strengthens our resolve to, to, re, to stand in the midst of suffering or in the midst of persecution or the midst of difficulty, whatever the case may be. So with deliberate intent, and this is the choice that we need to make, with deliberate intent, we must be able to interpret the goings-ons in the world around us with the wisdom of God's word, with the love of God's heart, and the discernment of God's thoughts. We have to look through the lens of God's word for us to, to see that God is doing something far more than what we think. This is why in Hebrews 11, Moses could follow through on doing what he did. Moses here didn't talk a big game. He lived a big game. He walked the talk. And because he could, and the only reason he could walk the talk is because God walked with him. Hebrews 11 verse 27 says this, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Therefore, if the eyes of faith are instilled within us from our parents or from our leaders or from our our elders, from our uncles and aunties, those eyes of faith that are instilled within us can be strengthened through those unique circumstances, then we see what God can do through even the limited resources that he has. The limited resources made available to him where he can take us as as broken and as frail and as weak, sinful human beings and bring about that which is God-glorifying, that which lasts to eternity. That's the joy of living by faith in a God who knows us and loves us. So, if you look at verses 28 and 29, we can see what God can do through our limited resources. 28 and 29 of Hebrews 11, we read this. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Now, these two verses, I call them bookends. Because I'm wondering why, why did the writer of Hebrews look at those two specific instances when there's so many other examples of what God could do through various people? This is like the legacy. I, I, I termed it as the legacy of what God can do because it begins with the 10th plague of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And it ends in Exodus 13 with the crossing of the Red Sea. And what I look at that as is, is the consummation of that deliverance. Because once they passed through the Red Sea, they couldn't go back to where they were. You have the deliverance or the, the redemption of Israel with the sacrifice of the Lamb. Then you have the baptism of Israel as they passed through the waters and being completely freed from Egypt's hold. But I don't want to, before we carry on with these bookends, I don't want to overlook The beauty of God shaping, molding, and developing of Moses from when he ran to Midian to where he then confronted Pharaoh to when he's a part of the miracles of God when the the death of the firstborn takes place. Okay, This is an amazing story of what God can do with the little we have to offer. Now, I've touched on the resolve of Moses just very briefly as he tries to bring deliverance through his own strength. But that resolve gained in the halls of Pharaoh's palace had to be tempered by the humility. Tempered means strengthened. It had to be tempered by the humility of one's failure, which is something that God did. The confidence of his royal position and authority had to be shown for how limited it really was, which is something that God did. The earthly power manifest through Moses' human effort had to be revealed as useless. And that was something God did. And in each of those revelations, God led him through each of these supposed failures in order to reveal to Moses that he needed God in his life. This is essentially the reason why the Ten Commandments were given. When you look at the Ten Commandments and how they're laid out for us, they are not a plan for how you and I can get to know God. They are, I guess you could say, an accurate portrayal of what God requires and exposes to us how much we need Him. That's what the Ten Commandments do. They reveal the futility of our own human effort and forces us to our knees to ask for forgiveness. Our failures as we walk faithfully with him may actually be the tempering of our hearts, the the growing of our souls, the revealing of our need for him. Those trials that we experience, the hardships, the sufferings, that could just be God working within each of our lives saying, you need me more than anything else. That's why he says in James chapter 1, consider it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Why? Because falling into those means that I need to rely on him to get me through it. That's why it happens. This is why when Pharaoh was angered with him, Moses pressed on regardless this is why when he was suffering, he pressed on regardless. It's why when he identified as an Israelite, he pressed on regardless. He pressed on through all the hardships. He pressed on through all the difficulties. He pressed on through all the sufferings. If you look at uh, Philippians chapter 3, when it says, Brethren, I count myself not to, ha- not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to the things that are before And then he says, I pressed toward the mark, or I pressed toward the goal. Because of where his eyes were focused on the beyond, his eyes were focused on God, he pressed on. That God could take his limited resources and enable him to press on to do far more than what he could ever have imagined. Which leads me to this, a couple of thoughts. When we think we're doing the right thing, when we're confronted with an obstacle, or react with our own sense of of justice. When we think we're doing God's work, when in actuality we may be doing more harm than good. It may be us using our position or our authority or our strength uh, that might actually be contrary to God's will. Now, it may be a good plan, but is it a God plan? That's what we need to remember we can try things, but we have to understand. For all the, I mean, Nick is a talented man. He's intelligent. He's good-looking. He's musical. Brad, I mean, he owns a farm, okay? But you know, there's, there's all these things that are going on. But we we have to take what limited resources we have, lay it at God's feet, and allow Him to take us and lead us where He wants us to be, not what we think. It's why, why when you look at. Um, In Matthew 16, when Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? And and Peter Peter gives this great revelation. If you look at verses 21 and 22, you read how after Jesus talks about how he must go into Jerusalem, suffer many things, and and be put to death at the hands of the Pharisees, Peter takes him aside in verse 21, 22 of Matthew 16, and basically rebukes. It actually says he rebukes Jesus, to which Jesus responds, get thee behind me, Satan. See, Peter had a good plan, but he saw Jesus' ministry from a human perspective, from his viewpoint, not God's. And what Peter was doing, as as well-intended as it was, was actually doing the work of Satan and trying to get Jesus to defer from his God-ordained plan. So it's very important that, yes, as good as the plan may be, we have to make sure that it is God's plan. But going back to Moses, God took Moses through all of these supposed failures. God took Moses with all his limited resources, and and he he encourages Moses by giving Moses a glimpse of what God could do through him. For example, in Exodus chapter 4, after Moses has tried to come up with excuse after excuse after excuse not to be God's representative in Exodus chapter 3, he then approaches God and says this in Exodus 4, verse 1. He says, uh, what, what if the people don't believe me? What if the people don't believe me? This is what God says God says, I'll use your staff. Because what's in your hand? A staff. Read Exodus 4, verses 2 to 5, and how Moses throws it on the ground, it becomes a snake, and then he takes it back up again because I'll use your staff. Then he says, once again that you know going back to Moses' question, what if they don't believe? God says, put your hand in your robe because I'll use your hands. Because I'll use your staff, I'll use your hands. Put your hand in your robe. Take it out and it's become leprous. Put it back in there, take it out and it's well again. So he says, I'll use your staff and I'll use your hands. Then he says that to that same question, what if they don't believe? God says to him, look, I I'll use your mouth. I made your mouth I can use your mouth. I made your ears. I can use your ears. I, I, I made your eyes. I can use your eyes. I can, use, I can even use your brother as a vessel to be a representative for you. That's all in Exodus 4, 9 to 17. This, there's no limit to what God can do. He says, what if they don't believe? He goes, I'll use your staff. I'll use what's in your hands. I can use your hands. I can use your eyes. I can use your ears. I can use your mouth. Man, I can even use other people in your life. There is no limit to what God can do. So when we sit there and we say, Lord, what if? Lord, what if? Lord, what if? Don't live in hypotheticals. Don't live in hypotheticals. We don't serve a hypothetical God. He doesn't offer us hypothetical power. He doesn't give us hypothetical promises. He gives us truth as one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. So when we sit there and say, Lord, what if he says, I'll use your hands, I'll use your feet, I'll use your mouth, I'll use your eyes, I'll use your ears, I'll use you. Man, I can even use people in your family. If I can make the donkey speak my word, if I can make the rocks cry out when you refuse to cry out, man, I have no problem using you. That's what God can do with the limited resources made available to him. And it's a work that results, at least for Moses, in that legacy, those bookends. It's the result of those bookends of verses 28 and 29, of God's ultimate deliverance through the sacrifice of the lamb and then ultimate consummation in the crossing of the Red Sea. That's the legacy of Moses as he lived by faith in a God who keeps his promise, redeemed through his sacrifice, bought with the blood of the lamb. And that is a foreshadowing of what we have received in Christ as well through faith in him. That we are redeemed through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. That when he came and died for our sin, when he shed his blood through faith in him, we are cleansed. We are redeemed. We are bought by that blood we receive forgiveness of sin and that we are delivered from the old life as we are baptized by his spirit, that we are sealed by his spirit and that we are set apart as a new citizen of heaven, having our names written in the book of life. That's what God can do with the limited resources of my life and of yours. There's no limit. I mean, he who spoke and the universe came to being, he who flung the stars into space and... You know what 's crazy we read in the scriptures that he knows each star by name, he knows each star by name and i 'm not talking about those names where you' like k one five six seven not like that. He knows each one by name, and that, and in that newness that we are given in Christ in Christ, then, like Moses, he involves himself to use not only our limited resources but our supposed failures to shape us, to mold us, to develop us as parents, as brothers and sisters, as as a church, as leaders, as members, that he matures us in our relational faith with him and that we can possess we, we can then be possessed by the, the things of God, the person of who he is as he brings about his purposes and, and the glorifying in his name, of his name, should I say. So, so maybe, maybe, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but maybe the things we're going through at this point in time, as difficult as they are, might be the tempering of our spirits, might be the developing of our lives, might be the, 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 the teaching of our souls, those things that Moses learnt, the lessons Moses learned, the lessons of dependence, the lessons of trust, the lessons of faith, the lessons of being still and listening to God's voice because in all of those things we have been granted the ability to learn those lessons in Christ because that's what we have in Christ access to the father the ability to know the promises of God so that our desires might be his desires our heart might be his heart the way we see things will be the way he sees The way we see things will be the way he sees things and that we would much rather prefer the eternal over the temporal. That we would much rather have Jesus than the things of this world. That we would much rather find our fulfillment in, in the things of God rather than the shallow offerings that this world has to offer. That's, that's the lesson that I think He's trying to teach us through Moses here by faith. Of what God can do through a godly example, whether it be parents, leaders, whatever. What God can do through the unique circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether they might be failures or not. And what God can do through the limited resources that we have to offer. That's what, there's no limit to what God can do through each of those things. I pray That that would be our desire. Um, I'm going to invite Brad and and, and Joyce up soon. Um, But I pray that that would be our desire to learn and and to move in those areas. There is a very old song by Jim Reeves. I'm 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 Jim Reeves, an old country singer. Um, I don't think anybody here knows him. Oh yeah, except Brad plays him on the farm, which is great. Uh, Thank you very much for that, Brad. But there's this one song which I think, and I think this would be a great prayer for us to have. But this, this is uh, the first verse. He says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held by sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I pray that that will be our heart's prayer today. As we stand here in your presence, we thank you that you are a great, loving, and merciful God. We thank you that in your Son, we can call you Abba Father. Thank you so much for the privilege to be with you this morning and ask that you will continue to reveal your greatness to us with each passing moment. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks And praise your glorious name. Amen.